Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, it's the 20th of January, and I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. And welcome to Queers. Uh, how are you today, Ben? I'm very well, Simon. We are in the midst of midsummer down here in Melbourne, which is our, our big um, queer cultural festival. And having worked in the community for some years, it's always a, a crazy time running around seeing uh, theatre and art and too much booze and, you know, catching up with people you haven't seen in a, a, since last midsummer. So that's that's what Melbourne is right now. How about you? It sounds like fun. I've always uh, wanted to go to midsummer. I've never been. Is there a, is there a, is there a Canberra queer? Yeah, there's um, Spring Out, which happens in spring. Um, it's, it's it's obviously not as big as midsummer would be, um, but it's all right. But I'd, I'd like to go to midsummer. It always looks like fun. So... After a few false starts with the, the podcast this year and uh, over the past few months, we're back. Uh, we're going to get going properly. We're aiming to do a podcast every fortnight. Um, today, we're going to start off the year by reflecting on one of the biggest queer celebrities of the last 50 years, which is uh, David Bowie. Yeah, uh, David Bowie died of cancer just uh, over a week ago um, to the shock of virtually everyone. He didn't really tell anyone about it after an 18-month 18 18-month battle. Um, his... Not only the one of the biggest rock legends of the last century, but he was a major sexual icon as well. Uh, he was one of the first openly gay and later bisexual. You know, he, cha- he just changed his terms around what he was discussing. Uh, rockers, and importantly, his an- androgynous style influenced the way we thought about sex, gender, sexuality, and ways that is still having real impacts today. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of David Bowie, and so I suggest that we talk about him today. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit that I cried quite a bit on the day he died. Uh, and Ben, however, uh, as he's told me, has only really started discovering him in the last year. Um, so we thought it'd be a good way for the two of us, you know, one person who's loved him for years and one person who's just discovering him to, to discuss him today. Um, so we're going to talk about the man, his legacy, and the role celebrities play in shaping our sexual politics. So Ben, the first question for you, you really only got into David Bowie's music last year. How and why did this happen and what did you fall in love with? So I should, I should preface any of my responses here by saying that... Um, you know, Simon is, is very much the, the kind of master in the situation. I, the, the humble apprentice, uh, when it comes to <laughs> Bowie. So, so I, I um, you know, I suppose that's the that's the lens uh, through which I'm 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 viewing this discussion, and engaging with this discussion. But 
I had... I've tried to get into Bowie so many times over the years and always just really struggled. And I, I, um, I think I just had always been pointed to, to Ziggy Stardust, which is the album everyone says you have to listen to. Simon yeah, yeah. since told me it's, it's not one of his favorites. And I just found it really kind of, uh, ah, really obscure and, and kind of not, you know, very kind of rocky, which is not really my thing. And then, um, Finally, uh, it was suggested to me that instead I, I start with Hunky Dory, which is the album just before that, and it's mm-hmm. much more pop, much more my kind of thing. And I think just really has a sense of fun to it that I didn't initially get from from Ziggy Stardust. So I think that that's kind of part of what, what started getting me into his music. At the same time in Melbourne at um, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACME, there was a big exhibition last year. Uh, I might still be running, I'm not actually no, sure. No, I know it's finished, otherwise I would have been in Melbourne by now. Ah, uh, yes. Um, uh, about, it was a kind of a, a retrospective on, on Bowie's life and his career, and particularly, I guess, his cultural impact, and it seemed as good an opportunity as any to, to try to re-engage with the music. And so I, I went along to that and um, I suppose just learning a little bit about him. And I, I really knew nothing uh, before. I, you know, I saw I saw him in Labyrinth as a, as a kid <laughs> and that's kind of the extent of my exposure. Um, yeah, I suppose it gave me a sense of what an impact he's had, not just on music, but on... Uh, I guess the way we view, yeah, as as you were saying, Simon, you know, sexuality and 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 gender and and particularly fluidity around those things mm, uh, yeah. over the past, uh, you know, four or five decades, um, and I kind of it just kind of made me go, oh my god, like I need to, I I I know nothing about this massive cultural touchstone, and and that seems, given my interests, completely ridiculous. So I guess that was my those two things kind of happening at the same time were my way in, but it's still, I'm still in that kind of exciting phase where it, the, his whole discography is kind of stretching out in front of me and his whole life, which is, you know, like I, on, on reflection, quite sad. I, I, I suppose given um, news over the past week or so, uh, but it's it's still kind of at quite an exciting point for me that that's all there to to discover. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So you know, I've I discovered David Bowie uh, when I was in high school. Um, my mother introduced me to him um, after discussing music one day, and I got his sort of best of collection. It was um, best of from 1969 to 1974 because he he was it's one of those artists that has so many tracks that they split his best of into different years. And I listened to that album that collection, and I just I fell in love instantly. And then my parents bought me a new album which was Young Americans, which comes after that period. And I was sort of looking at the back of the CD and going, oh, there's none of these, none of the, you know, the collect, you know, none of the best of are on, are on this disc. You know, what have they gotten me one of the shit ones or something like that? And then I kind of realized that the extent of his catalogue and how, you know, Young and Americans is an amazing album. It's a, it's a real soulful album. It, it, it goes well beyond anything of the, uh, the, the glam rock era that really defines Bowie's legacy. Um, and the extent of his catalogue is so, so, so vast and so different um, and so differing and so interesting that I realised, you know, sort of the, the person I was encountering, the, this sort of, 
legend that I was encountering in terms of the and the excitement. I can remember that excitement of realizing how much more I had to listen to and how different each one was to listen to when I, whenever I put that new album on. Um, and it's been really nice in the last couple of years to be able to listen to new music of his and the last two albums that he that he produced uh, were both very different, different from stuff he's done in the past, different from each other, uh, and. Uh, that was exciting too, um, and it's and I'm one both, of the... but his both of his most recent albums have been very well received. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if you you know um, the next day, which was the first album that it came out after ten years or so, um, uh, was a sort of more rocky type album, um, and I really really enjoyed it. I've listened to it so many times; it's not funny. Uh, and Black Star, which is the one that only came out you know two days before his death. Uh, was more jazz, experimental. Um, one, you know, I've heard uh, people say it's one of his most experimental albums or his most experimental album, which is a lot to say for someone like David Bowie. So it's, it was completely different different world from, from the next day. Um, and I think one of the things I've struggled with the most uh, is, you know, I've read a lot about how he, you know, he'd spoken about potentially doing a follow-up to Black Star. He'd spoken with uh, Brian Eno about revisiting one of their earlier albums and doing a re-release of it. And there's obviously with a lot of creativity that uh, he still wanted to do that's now been lost because he passed away too soon. Um, and that's, that's a really sad part of his death. I think that there was probably, you know, he'd spent 10 years Stop, he stopped for 10 years and it was just now coming back into it and hitting another hitting another prime and now now he's gone which is really really quite sad my um my older brother is a, a big Bowie fan and a, a musician himself and he said to me once that what is phenomenal about I suppose the um for how long he was putting out such good quality music, which is quite unusual for for any artist for it still to be good you know so many years into into a career is that he always you know, he never became complacent about about the music he was making and was kind of always pushing himself, always surrounding himself with with um, talented and, and different musicians to kind of push him to, to be doing new things. And, you know, he never... And, and you know, I, you're a better position to comment on this than me, but I, I got the sense that he never kind of... Um, he was never complacent about his work and his legacy... He never kind of rested on his on his laurels with that, but was still always creating, always pushing for something new. Yeah, yeah. And going back to, I guess, that period that um, really defines his sexual legacy, and I think that's something we want to talk about quite a bit here, uh, the, the Ziggy Stardust period. I mean, Ziggy Stardust was, you know, the, it was he was really defined by um, by the tour, an international tour they did in which, in which Bowie and the Spiders from Mars, which was his band, you know, went around and really shocked people with this this character, this androgynous character. And it, you know, it, within a year, within the space of a year, year and a half, it turned him from a sort of bit of an obscure folk rocker into an international superstar and that was you know this tour really defined that and then one day Bowie decided uh you know declared in a concert in London that he was retiring and what you know everyone thought at that time that he meant Bowie was retiring what he meant was Ziggy was retiring and I've read some stuff from you know people saying that a lot of their uh, the producer of the tour the, the the manager thought that this this tour was going to go on for years that he was just going to be Ziggy for years but he realized at a point that that 
part of him was done and that he needed to move on and try something different and push himself diff- you know, into, into a different direction. Um, and that really says a lot about his character. He could have rested on the laurels of Ziggy and been a sort of rock superstar who went around and sung the same songs for years, but he didn't. He he moved on, he tried something different and he created, you know, beyond beyond Ziggy, you know, and Ziggy goes on to some other albums we were talking about before, Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs, which are very much in that glam rock style but beyond that he created some amazing music um that you know if he had decided to rest on ziggy then we would never have never have heard that and we've got to be thankful for for him not willing to not being willing to rest on those laurels and something that uh inspires me quite a bit so obviously even um before he even before he passed away and and all the kind of everyone was talking about black star the the most recent album in the midst of all of that uh, discussion and, and media focus. There's always a temptation to to um, maybe overhype the influence of a particular artist. You know, in the context of of uh, sexuality and and gender, like we've been talking about. I mean, do you think that that role has been overstated? That his influence on sexuality and gender in pop culture has been overstated. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I actually wrote a piece for SBS. Um, to, to come out on the release date of Blackstar. So before his death, I sort of did a little bit of respe- retrospective on his um, sexual politics. Uh, and at the time, you know, Blackstar had some really good reviews and it was really interesting just to discuss that. And I've read some really interesting things talking about the influence he had in the 70s in particular in, in very conservative British culture. Um, to think about the fact that he came out uh, and said that he was gay uh, only five years after homosexuality was decriminalised um, in the UK was quite a big deal, I think. Uh, and then to be this sort of androgynous, you know, to create these characters that were openly bisexual or openly gay uh, was also quite a big thing. Um, I think that it's really hard to estimate the the level of influence it had in the last, you know, in that period. Um, but I think if you want to look at their level of influence, you can see the sort of reaction to his death uh, and see the, the stories that sort of poured out from people who were saying, you know, this, this man had such an influence. I remember watching him on Top of the Pops, which was, you know, his big breakthrough um, performance. I remember, you know, people saying, I remember watching him on Top of the Pops and um, feeling, you know, feeling like, something different like there was someone who was who was very different and allowed me to be myself or you know said that you can be yourself i think it's really hard to deny that influence um that was mixed with some of the the movements of the period of course and you know bowie wouldn't have been able to do that if it weren't for you know the gay movements of the time and if it weren't for those sorts of uh what was happening in those periods so the two are interlinked um and you couldn't be a openly gay rock star in the early 60s or the 50s i think and have survived because the so the, the times had changed so there's a mixture of him helping influence things and him also being influenced by the time and being a benefit benefit of his time. Um, but what, do, what does he, uh, I mean, how did he identify in terms of gender and sexuality? Well, I think it, it really changed. Um, so, so in 1972, he, he told a magazine that he was gay. He used the term gay. Uh, and then, uh, he, um, 
uh, amended that, I guess, to bisexual, and and he obviously was when he told uh, when he said that he was gay, he was married at the time to Angie Bowie, who he was married to for ten years up until 1980, uh, or maybe a bit longer than ten years actually, and then obviously he got married to Imam in. Uh, the early 90s um, so I think that he probably maybe would have said I you know bisexual uh, and then also uh, I've seen some interviews where people are oh you know you, you were gay um, I saw a really interesting good interview um, just recently or probably maybe 10 years ago because he hasn't done, done interviews for years but uh, one where someone was saying oh you know did you identify as gay and he's like well no I was just really more having fun I was really promiscuous I think he used the term I like to get my legs up all the time uh, <laughs> something along those lines so I think it, I think that was really interesting as well and that he didn't stick to one identity he that was fluid as well as his gender um, gender identity which was which was fluid as well I think in terms of gender I think he would have always called himself a man I don't think he had that ever changed but he was uh, willing to break a lot of the stereotypes of what being a man looked like you know in the 60s the 50s and 60s you know they were still that very strong rugged masculine image of men which uh, he changed a lot through through Ziggy but also through you know if you look at uh, the album The Man Who Sold the World, which is what, his second album. You know, he's on the cover. He is sitting on a couch in a long, flowing dress. Um, you know, that's very different for those periods. Most rock stars wouldn't have been able to get away with that. Hmm. I mean, I, I ask, I guess, in part uh, because, and, you know, I should preface this by saying I'm very conscious of the extent to which we scrutinise male sexuality for signs of, um, you know, gayness or otherwise, mm. I guess. But I think before before I really started to engage with his life and, and um, the, the cultural context of his music more, I think part of me perhaps always um, imagined that he was... Um, or had had some perhaps reserve about his legacy, thinking of him as basically he could get away with this because he was a, a straight guy, you know, doing these things in the, you know, at a time when when someone who was just kind of purely openly gay um, maybe couldn't have done yep. that. There was a kind of safety in the ambiguity of 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 that. Um, I think I have a, a more nuanced view now um but at the same time i mean there's 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 something very it's interesting to compare him to someone like say you know freddie mercury who who was just uh who was kind of slightly later but but very much a similar time and very much kind of grew um, grew into this very explicitly not just homosexual but gay yeah very gay um and that and, and celebrating a kind of gay masculinity rather than a sort of queer fluidity and ambiguity. Um, they seem to sit very differently. Of, I guess, their legacy and my emotional responses to them. I was going to say, do you think that's, that's kind of fair as a characterization? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, they're very different. Like, uh, you think about someone like Freddie Mercury, and, and you're right, it's that very gay identity um that very uh in particular the period of he, he was in that was that uh you know in the 80s the the period of the hiv crisis he was a very stereotypical gay looking guy whereas for bowie i think that uh it fluctuated a lot more it was um it was it was changing it was different and i think 
for some people may be, may be confusing and some some people may say it was a bit of an act um, but I think that there were genuine parts of that fluidity that was there and you know you've he I've heard of interviews of him later later on sort of post that 70s really sexual promiscuous period of his where he sort of discusses the the realities of that of that fluid nature of of what he of how he saw himself and that connects to a lot of his other identity changes the characters he created and the, and the shifts in identities he had that was mixed with his sexuality all all the way through um so it was a different form of i guess identification that i think is kind of important um so it wasn't that stand that's not, not standard isn't the right word it wasn't that strict i'm gay this is what i am it was i'm me and that changes around at different periods of time and you know my identities change and that's okay and it's okay to change those things and shift around sure i mean i, I guess like that you know, you're saying that makes me reflect on my questions coming from very much a framework of of identity politics and particularly this kind of new new identity politics mm. um which which uh, despite perhaps protesting otherwise is i think very much about essentializing these kinds of uh traits you know and yeah, the idea absolutely. that your identities can be you know even you know a series of characters that you kind of take on and off um isn't so far removed i guess from my own just experience of being a person let alone a um a sexual person yeah absolutely yeah and i think on reflecting on his death i think uh for me something that i thought about is that I'm not sure Bowie would have gotten away with what he got got away with now as he would have in the 70s. And I think that particularly around sexuality, if, if, if he was a rock star now um, saying he was gay whilst married to a woman, for example, I think he would have really suffered for that. And he would have been chastised by the gay community for stealing identities, for taking taking a queer, queer identity that doesn't belong to him, for... Um, for you know, making life difficult for gay people by, by acting, by making the whole idea that it's a choice, you know, types of things. Uh, those sorts of critiques would have happened to him now and that they didn't happen in the 70s. And it says something about where we've come, how we've come and, and, and how we've essentialised those identities so that it makes it more difficult for someone like him, who is very changing, who shifted uh, shifted with the times and shifted with himself and made, you know, changed himself along the way. Um, something has happened which would make that life much more difficult. Sure. Days, I mean, I and it's, I, I, you know, I think um, there's a, I always imagine a contrast between, I guess, you know, obviously they're imagined criticisms, but um, criticisms based in a kind of uh, discourse of essentialism and then, stuff that's about i mean essentially cultural appropriation i mean it's not really something that we uh i feel like we don't mm. talk about it a lot in the gay community but it's certainly something that comes up for all sorts of kind of marginalized groups and it's kind of um it would be a dare i say a fun challenge i think to be presented with as a gay man at this point to kind of go <laughs> what does it mean to um like, can, can we, I guess, uh, do we have a crystallized enough idea of our own identity to be able to imagine what cultural appropriation would look like from someone who, um, you know, is so respected and, and so influential? Uh, you know, how would we how would we react to that? You know, I, I, I would almost almost relish the debate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things uh, and it's not just cultural appropriation in terms of sexuality either. One of the things um, I've seen in 
a little bit of discussion some facebook stuff is uh some people posting about his album young americans which is a real um soul album and he he hired and supported a lot of um uh black musicians from the united states to come and help him with this and station to station is also a similar style album uh and there are there are people who've been questioning whether that would be considered cultural appropriation today whether you know him branching off into this other stream of music uh in that period which is different to his identity branching off into different streams of identities which is also what he did whether branching off into that stream of music is considered cultural appropriation you know from what a lot, a lot of what i've read he did a, a whole lot to support all of the musicians that he that he hired he um really respected a lot of the music and and then in turn was respected by a lot of that community he got on uh, i think it's called soul train which is sort of the big soul tv show of the time and was a really big deal to have a white person on that show um so that's it's interesting that sort of debate around cultural appropriation because some may see all of that sort of stuff today as cultural appropriation it definitely wasn't seen like that when he was doing it and but what does that mean about where we've come i don't i don't know mm. yeah it's a tough one i mean and, and obviously uh, given cultural appropriation, it's it's usually those discussions are usually centered around race, basically, you know, more than sexuality. It's it's very difficult to have those yeah, conversations absolutely. as those conversations as a couple of white guys talking about a white guy. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to let's maybe move on a little bit. I wanted to talk about, I guess, we've been doing this a little bit, but the role of um, icons in helping shape. Uh, sex, sexual identities and 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 our our own persona. I've said, I guess, in the past that Bowie really helped shape my sexual politics and and helped uh, shape an understanding of myself. As I said, I, I I really got to know him as I was in the process of coming out, and I think he had a big influence on me. Um, ben, you've only really come to know him recently. Do you have someone that you look back to when you were a kid, when you were you know, thinking about your sexuality for the first time, is there someone that you looked up to at that point of time in a similar way that I may have looked up to Bowie? Um, I suppose it's... Uh, I thought about this a lot for for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I, I guess partly, you know, because of people people are saying these kinds of things about Bowie in the, in the last few weeks. I mentioned Freddie Mercury before. I think there was a point at which I liked to imagine almost retroactively that he was that for me, I mean, I, I was a big Queen fan. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a, I still am, but, you know, was uh, as a teenager in particular. And there is something certainly about that, um, I, I guess, you know, what I love about Freddie Mercury and I think something that I, I, I find kind of aspirational about him, I suppose, is that he is very, he's very kind of masculine in a very sort of powerful way, but also just incredibly gay and incredibly Mm -hmm. sexual. Like he's not, he, it is, I think rare still, it's rare to see a performer who is, um, you know, so gay. I mean, I'm trying to find another word for it, but that's like basically the perfect word who is so gay. Um, but so powerful, you know, that that's not, kind of coded that that power is not coded as heterosexual which i think is is kind of often what happens or that um that gayness is not coded as uh sort of submissive or or um uh you know feminine i guess i'm using air quotes in in that stereotypical way yeah yeah absolutely Uh, and and then i guess you know i i 
in my work as a, a journalist, a, a couple of years ago, I, I interviewed Jake Shears from um, the Scissor Sisters, and and I feel like he's the kind of closest anyone comes to carrying yeah, yeah. carrying on that that legacy for me at least. But in terms of when I was a kid, I mean, for me, and this is something that's that's you know the depths of this have have really been plumbed by by gay men over the years. But for me, it was it was women really. You know, my my role models, I guess, in terms of. Um, gender identity rather than sexuality were strong women you know i i mean this is like a really really dorky thing to admit here on this podcast but <laughs> i so I'm, a, I'm a big star trek fan um as a lot of gay men are was nothing just kind of indoctrinated that. as a kid and and one of the the series star trek voyager has a, a female captain who's the the lead of the show and i was kind of think, reflecting on this recently as an adult how um that i kind of partly because you know i'm embarrassed about it uh just completely downplay how influential that was on me as a kid um in terms of i guess imagining myself as being able to be someone who is maybe not stereotypically masculine and certainly wasn't as a kid um but could I don't know, achieve things and accomplish things. And, and you know, I'm, I'm much more kind of yeah, skeptical about those, those sorts of discourses of aspiration now. But still, you know, that that um, has a, a um, you know, it's a kind of core part of me. Uh, and I think that's that's a, a common experience for, for a lot of gay men, not necessarily the Star Trek thing, but the, you know, having, I guess, women as, as those role <laughs> models when, uh, when you're younger. I mean, did you have that experience as well? I'm trying to think about that now, um, and I'm not sure I did so much. Um, I I really wasn't one for huge role models when I was, a, you know, first celebrity role models or those sorts of characters when I was a kid as much. I think Bowie is really the closest I come to that, uh, and um, I I can't go somebody straight off the top of my head uh, who I would think of particularly, you know, anyone else, anyone else apart from Bowie who I would be able to think of on top of my head who I was really looking up to when I was a kid. Um, and so maybe I'll have to think about that a bit more. But I think that the uh, the role women play in the gay male community in particular, which is the sort of community we two, we two sit in, is really interesting to me. And it was something I've been thinking about a little, a little bit in terms of Bowie and and the, the role, I guess, the sort of uh, stereotypical diva plays, you know, Cher, Madonna, Kylie Minogue, those sorts of women play in the gay community has often been something of a, a real interest and maybe frustration to me. Why, um, why seeing, frustration? Um, I, I think it's just seeing the... Uh, the the influence of maybe influence is not about you know them having influence of over a community is fine but i guess it's the the seeing um the idea of them being sort of gay icons when when as far as i'm aware none of them identify as gay when there are amazing queer artists men women um those who don't identify either of those genders uh who often get overlooked i think you know who don't who don't make it onto the stage of mardi gras um because kylie's there instead you know and i have nothing against any of these artists i think you know i quite like most of their music as well um, but it's always been a really interesting uh question for me of why does uh, why do these artists get all the attention in a lot of the gay press and a lot of the sort of gay events uh, when there are a lot of queer artists who who don't who who miss out um, who who often are overlooked? Well, I mean, I suppose the the question 
um, underneath that question is is why do I mean why do gay men feel such a strong connection to these women because it's not because it's not like Absolutely. it's um, it's not like it's being forced on people in in you know like the, like I mean well maybe it's debatable is in some sense being forced on people but um, you know people feel this kind of genuine uh, connection to these these women I I was talking to someone about this recently and uh, he described, he described them. It's almost like a totemic thing. You know, these women are like um, sort of totems for gay men. They, they sort of say something about mm. you and I, it, it's, it's less, it's less aspirational than it is. Uh, yeah, I don't even know. Like it's it's almost like a it's almost like your star sign or something. You know, you you kind of um, <laughs> you sort of they have qualities that you admire and characteristics that you admire that you want to kind of internalize without actually wanting to kind of be that person. And I I think there's actually something kind of lovely about it. I, I didn't. Um, I mean, like, yes, obviously, I, I agree that it would be great to have to have more representation from queer artists, but I think that's that's happening. I mean, this is obviously also coming out of a a, a legacy where this was all men had. You know, they're just. I mean, Bowie is um, one of a very small group of exceptions to that, and I think for a lot of the reasons that we've sort of touched on. Actually, that's maybe an interesting question to ask quite directly. Um, I get the sense sometimes that that you are perhaps uh, that there are not a lot of gay men who would think about Bowie in the same way that you do, and in fact, most of the people I know who are big fans um, are straight men. Um, I mean, why? I guess first of all, would you agree? And and I'd be curious to know why you think that is yeah I, I think i do agree um and i think maybe that um maybe that's part of my frustration i guess i see him as someone who has uh far more interesting and influential uh politics and uh cultural influence particularly around sex and, and gender identity and a lot of those things and it's it's often i guess frustrated maybe 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 more recently when i've seen his you know when his he's been producing new music and it's gotten within a lot of the gay press or a lot of those sorts of communities i feel like it's sort of didn't didn't get the the attention i thought sometimes it deserved um and i've been struggling with the question of why that is um and particular within the gay male community, I think it's very true that that is exactly what it is. And I don't, and I don't know why. Part of me uh, theorises that maybe uh, it's in relation to his politics and some of that stuff we were talking about before, about the, the sort of fluidity of his sexuality and particularly the fluidity of his gender, which I think a lot of gay men, um, a lot of, not all obviously, but a lot of gay men um, are reacting negatively to these days. Um, a lot of that sort of femininity, feminine sort of um, relation we've got have sort of swung to a bit more of a masculine style of, of, of desire recently. Um, I think that that's something we could talk about another time, but a lot of that sort of mass for mass stuff, I think, um, sort of reacts to him. Uh, is, there, is it has been part of that negative reaction to him? Well, it's not necessarily a negative reaction, but just a sort of lack of enthusiasm. Um, however, at the same time, following his death, there has been... Uh, 
that sort of alternate uh, reading in which particularly I think a lot of older gay men have really uh, come out uh, strongly saying this is the the level of influence he's, that Bowie had, but also I think that there is another part of the community that maybe one that I'm not as connected to, to connected to as a, as I'd like to be, um, but that I've really noticed since his death. A lot of those sorts of people uh, who still identify with a lot more of that gender fluid politics and uh, trans, people in the trans community and sex community, and also just the gender queer community, um, and a lot of lesbian women as well who really uh, I got the sense were really influenced by him and a lot of younger people in that space who are real who, who remain influenced by him and look back to him uh in different ways than i think a lot of the gay male community do and i think that shows a really interesting split in term not necessarily a split but interesting perception of the the way different people perceive different celebrities uh and and the, how different parts of the uh, sort of broad queer community if that's what we're going to call it um, perceive different celebrities and look up to people in different kind of ways because I think that a lot of the community that I don't necessarily uh, I'm not necessarily part of uh, have more positive reactions to someone like Bowie than the gay male community which I think are more focused on those sorts of share Madonna Kylie Minogue style icons ah, I mean I, I, I find that so fascinating because I feel like it it, it really feeds into almost everything we've been talking about, I go, I go back to um, what we were talking about right at the, the top of the discussion about, you know, that, that reaction that I perhaps had early on to Bowie uh, of seeing him as like somehow quintessentially a, a, a straight man, basically, um, performing these, mm. these other identities. Uh, and, you know, I, you know maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe there, there's a kind of... Um, he produces a kind of discomfort in gay men or not. No, that's not, that's not even it. Maybe it's like, there's just nothing, you know, gay men, perhaps we look for this kind of essential quality of gayness in icons that just isn't there in Bowie because he sort of doesn't, doesn't fit that mold. Sure, and I mean, and he doesn't have an essential quality of like any uh, sexuality or gender, which is kind of what's what's great about him. Yeah, yeah, and 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 maybe that's why people like Freddie Mercury, who have who have spoken about it a little bit more, uh, still have that sort of influence. And I think you know, if you were to look beyond the sort of shares uh, and Madonnas, I think someone like Freddie Mercury is someone who definitely still has an influence in that in the gay male community. And I think that that what we were talking about before, that sort of sense of his essentialized, definitely very gay personality, I think still has uh, uh, still is still seen as relevant within within the community today. Totally. And, this, you know, and even though he, you know, Freddie was also doing some very experimental stuff, musically speaking, mm-hmm. I mean, my understanding is um, that in particularly in the 80s, after uh, like what, not after Queen, because I was still doing stuff then, but while he started doing a lot more solo stuff as well, like that had huge mainstream popularity in gay communities. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, has that I mean, purely in terms of Bowie's music, has that ever been the case? Like, even in his kind of more poppy sort of electronic 80s stuff? What, that it had influence in the gay community? Yeah, I mean, was it ever just popular? I, oh. I mean, I mean, in the in the early 80s, he was, he was sort of mainstream popular, uh, very sort of big rock star when, when he released Let's Dance, which is the sort of uh, his, his highest selling album, I think. Um, it's, that was a sort of classic pop album he did massive tours that sold you know 
sold out stadiums. It was it was huge. Um, I suspect, or oh, I, don't, I can't go into specifics about you know how these how these work within the gay community because I I don't I don't know about the sort of the 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 nuance of you know different gay cultures in those particular periods. Um, so what were they What were they playing in the clubs on Oxford Street in 1982? I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't answer that. Um, but I. I think that there's there was obviously some influence. If you look at if you look at the reaction to his death, um, there was clearly a level of influence that um, that is still that is still important, um, and and clearly a level of influence within gay male communities that I think a lot of gay men don't connect to. to a lot of young gay men today don't connect to as as much as gay men who are currently in their forties or fifties would have connected to. Um, but yeah, let's, I, I'm not sure it'll be interesting to sort of see some more of that play out following his death. Cause I think often an artist can have more legacy after their death, particularly someone like him, the reaction has been so huge. It won't stop now. Mm. So what do you reckon? Should that, should we finish there? I reckon we should call it. Well, thanks everyone to, for listening. Um, and we hope you enjoyed and happy new year. We'll be uh, podcasting a lot more this year, and uh, as I said, we're, we're aiming for fortnightly. But you know, fingers we always have to you know, caveats with that sort of thing. Um, hopefully, soon you'll yeah. be able to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch me on Twitter. I'm at Ben C Riley R I L E Y, and I'm at Simon Copland. That's C O P L A N D. Thanks, and uh, see you all next time. <laughs>